Hi, I'm Andy Kindler, and you're listening to PX Tape Recorder. Are you enjoying it? I certainly hope so. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Jose Sardaway. He put the tape in and we listened to the whole thing just crying hysterically in the car and we missed our fifth period class because of it. So I, I loved it as a kid, but I was going to be an astronaut. And then I got to be an adult and I tried and I found out uh, that's really hard. Great chat with Jose. Uh, it was originally going to be an interview just for print, but we had such a great conversation. Uh, I emailed him later and said, hey, could we use that for the podcast? And he said, sure, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, we have a song of the week coming up from our old friend Lindy Ortega, and I have a couple of uh, bits from the archives for you as I'm recording on this Easter Sunday. Enjoy. The new Mountain Dew summer flavors are here, and they're extreme, extremely extreme. Like the new Mountain Dew Nervous Conniption. Mountain Dew Nervous Conniption has to be the best flavor ever. And I was trying, you know, I was listening all the time, well, it just happens to be my favorite band in the world. You know, so it was all good. So whenever I listen to them, I think about the Nervous Conniption, because, I mean, it's just that good. Oh, and right now I'm talking about one friend, Emma, because I'm probably going to have Mountain Dew Nervous Conniption with her, because, you know, wouldn't that be so much fun? We'd be all really hyped together. You know, because being hyped okay. is the best part of right. the Okay, thank you. Thank you. Know, thanks. that's why it's so great. Shut up! Ah, sorry! <laughs> New Mountain Dew Nervous Conniption. Get some fast. Your friends are awesome at rock band, but you can't even make it through one song. Oh, man. But now you can have just as much fun as your more talented and more coordinated friends with the Rock Band Roadie Add-On Pack. Check, 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 check. Little higher, little higher. Check, 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 check. check. How's that? Check, check. Get your friends tuned up. And get their levels set before they start shredding. Is that clipping? I think that's clipping little. What do you think? Want to try it again? But make sure you do a good job, or your buds will fail. Dude! And you'll wind up at the merch table. The long sleeve tee is 40 bucks. Yeah, here you go. Rock Band Roadie Add-On Pack. Available now. Coming soon. Rock Band Groupie Pack. And Rock Band Ticket Scalper Pack. Jose Sardaway is a stand-up comedian with a fascinating backstory. He came to America with his parents in the Marial Boatlift in the late 1970s. He wanted to be an astronaut and join the Air Force, but then he became a stand-up comedian. But one week a month, he still fulfills his obligation in the Air Force Reserves teaching pilots to fly military aircraft. Here now is our interview with Jose Sardaway. Um, so where are you based? Are you in Minnesota or are you in the where? Where are you at? I I live in Los Angeles. Oh, okay, and so where yeah. are you, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Oh, okay. I was born I was born in Cuba and came when I was a little kid. Aha! Uh-huh. I was just listening yeah. to uh, NPR's Planet Money and they were talking about the uh, the boat lift back in what was it? Yeah, nineteen eighty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how I came over. Uh, really? How? Wow, yeah. How serendipitous. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they talk of this lady, she was a journalist, and she came over, and she was seven or eight when she came over, and she uh, didn't speak English, and her um, she learned English, her parents didn't really, because they lived in, you know, a little Havana there, and her dad right. got a job driving a yeah. truck, and uh, they were able to make a life of it here. That's that's pretty cool. Um, so, yeah. how old were you when, I, you when you came to Miami? I, I was three years old. My grandparents uh, are like what you just said, they... They 
she knows how to translate Miguel to Michael. And oh. then, um, oh, she actually knows five words. So she knows, oh, my God. She knows that. <laughs> and and then I work for Telemundo um, as the warm-up comic for Lavos Kids. And so my, my grandma knows the word kids just because of that. Oh, show. yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the extent of her English. That's funny. So, yeah. uh, so we're... Did you always have an interest, you know, early on in in show business, or how did that kind of generate itself living in Miami? Um, well, my family was very funny, and then um, when I was exposed to stand up as a kid, I I just uh, uh, you know adored it. I, if it was on TV, I had to watch it, and um, I missed I missed one period. Like I came from lunch, and I missed fifth period in high school because my friend had like Bill Cosby himself. You know, before we we knew about sure. Bill Cosby, oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, and he put the tape in, and we listened to the whole thing, just crying hysterically in the car, and we yeah. missed our fifth period class because of it. So I I loved it as a kid, but I was going to be an astronaut. That was my uh-huh. that was my dream. And, um, and then I got to be an adult, and I tried, and I found out uh, that's really hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's incredibly competitive, and um, I didn't make the you know the gates that you got to cross. Yeah, yeah. To to eventually be an astronaut, and uh, well, how far? It was kind of dis- it was kind of disappointing. I was you know in my early twenties, and um, I kind of lost my passion, and I kept trying, you know, those like far off left field attempts to get it, and and then I discovered stand up. So, huh. how far did you get in the astronaut process? Um, I didn't make I, I didn't become a fighter pilot, so that's the first part <laughs> in pilot training. Uh, so I was in when I was 22, and then I kept trying to cross train into fighters for years after that, and bombers, anything that would get me closer. Yeah. And then I thought about going into the spy plane, so I was going to go to pilot training to teach, and from there get enough hours to uh, to try and get in the the spy plane program, and then from the spy plane program you. You know, you don't just fly that plane. You fly the T thirty eight, which is the right the lead the lead into the fighter plane. So I would become qualified in that, and then I was going to go to a guard unit or a reserve unit and fly fighters with them, and then from there, so I'd be the oldest guy that ever became an astronaut. You know what I mean? Like I would go yeah. to fighter or fighter weapons school and become a graduate of that, and I would be you know most most astronauts get in in their mid thirties. I would get in in, their, in my mid forties, but wow. that was the plan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so the, the plan was in place, but it was just a very far fetched plan. So, um, you were in the Air Force. I, mean, I was an, I was an aeronautical engineer, so I yeah. graduated from the Air Force Academy with that. Oh, wow. And, and then I was a good pilot, but not good, in, you know, it was a very competitive program. So I didn't make it into fighters. And so I kept fighting for that next step. And then I was going to get my master's, at, you know, in aerospace and, and all of those stuff. And, uh, and along the way, I discovered, you know, this road will, will maybe not come to fruition for me. And I discovered stand-up comedy, and a new passion was born. And I, I eventually got to the point where I was, I have to, I have to send my audition. I've been in entertainment too long. I have to <laughs> send a, send an application pro, a package for the spy plane, or I can get out of the reserve, or get out and join the reserves, and then do comedy full time. And uh, you know that was a that was a tough year soul searching, but I figured it out and I went with entertainment. So, uh, so what what what's like the neatest thing you're qualified to fly? I mean, what can you and do you still fly privately? 
Um, I st- I'm still in the Air Force. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Air oh. Force Reserve. So I still oh, teach wow. uh, T-6s, which is a primary jet trainer for the Air Force, down in uh, Del Rio, Texas, six days a month. So I'm, I'm still in aviation. I'm, I'm working on a web series that involves aviation, so I do some civilian flying, too. But, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I never stopped flying. I never got out completely. Huh. And I, that gave me an advantage over a lot of the guys that were coming up in, in comedy, especially early on. I could travel, and other guys couldn't. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Co- comedy doesn't pay very much. Right. And so I, I had a good safety net of uh, of money, you know, not only was it a job that's fulfilling, and I know, and I'm and I'm getting to serve, and I enjoy it, and and pretty damn cool. I think flying upside down, yeah, with a with some 22 year old lieutenant trying to kill you. I mean, it's pretty exciting. Um, but I also had the money to go to a gig that didn't, you know, that most people it wouldn't pay enough to even break even. Yeah, and I, I would take a loss on that gig, but I would take that gig, and that would build rapport with that club, and then I would move up with that club a lot faster than a guy that's. You know, just coming up and as a, as a waiter or whatever. Yeah. So how did you discover stand-up comedy? You were out with the fellows one night and went to a club, or did you have a, an understanding of how it worked just from being a fan of it? Yeah, so I knew a lot of people's jokes. So I knew a lot of jokes because I watched a lot of stand-up. And think about it, one. Buddy, except myself and the person who was in the story. So my friend, my friend Joe and I, I remember clearly we were telling a story to these two girls that we were trying to hook up with. And I remember Joe and I were laughing hysterically. And at one point I looked at the two girls and they, they had this look on their face like, well, they seem to be having a good time. Huh. So I was not, so I was not funny on my own accord. You know, like I could, oh, somebody brings up horse racing. I can bring up Jerry oh, Pettel's okay. joke about horse racing, you yeah. know. Um, and so I was funny that way, but not on my own. And then something changed in um, uh, when I was 25. Um, I went to visit a, a woman I was seeing in Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, the center of entertainment, and um, she introduced me to some friends, so two couples that I never met before, and they didn't want to hear jokes. They didn't. They wanted to hear stories about me. And I had a few beers, and I started telling stories about my mom, about coming from Cuba. You know, my mom killed a chicken in front of me. And, that's why there was never any discipline problems in the house, huh. and huh. you know, and and you know, being in the air force, I'm in I'm in cargo planes, which you know, to anyone else that's cool. But if you know what fighter planes are like, you're like, yeah, it's cool. But when people shoot at me, I can't shoot back. Huh. You know, fighter guys are like, you shot at me, you're going down. They yeah, shoot at yeah. me, and it's like they are shooting you guys. This is not cool. You huh. know, it's not as uh, it's not. As, it's not as cool soldier-ish. And so they, they wanted to hear those stories. And I remember for about 10 minutes, nobody said anything but me. And like a, a guy gushed beer out of his nose and one of the girls fell out of her chair. You know, everybody was red in the face and just laughing. And I was like, all right, I gotta go pee. And I went to pee and I was in the, in the bathroom and I go, what just happened? And that was like the moment that we're hit. And then I started, I made the choice. I started discovering, you know, what it took to be a comedian because I love the art form. Like I'm, yeah. I was the fan in the audience. But if someone heckled, I would look. I would just death glare, you know, death glare them, and I would just be like, I would look at the comedian like, you want me to handle this? You know, like <laughs> I give them that look, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and I'd be like, this is a live show. Are you, are you talking? You know? 
and then the comedian would handle it and I would be so grateful to the comedian like oh you're so good thank you you know so I was that that kind of fan um, so I didn't want to sell the art form I gave myself the more I found out about it the more the hard it is how challenging it is you know how some people just suck and don't really realize it and don't you know and keep you know mucking the art form up and I so I gave myself a time frame to get funny and I you know I wrote for about six months to a year I think and then when I was 26 I got on stage in New York City and started the process and um, found success pretty early um, in terms of writing jokes and um, you know haven't stopped since so were you living in New York then and just kind of doing the New York thing and hitting the clubs as often as you could like a lot of the folks I was stationed in New Jersey so that's why cargo planes out of New Jersey oh nice you know, in, in central New Jersey, which is, you know, not the hub of comedy, not really conducive to being a single guy either. Um, very, very rural area. Um, like they, they did not have a bar district. They put all these bars about an hour away from each other. So, yeah. uh, almost guaranteeing DUIs. Huh. Um, so, uh, I didn't, I re- didn't really like it there. And then I moved to Philadelphia and that was great. Okay. But, um, but I started taking the, the bus up to New York City, um, the Chinatown bus, which is, I don't, I don't know how, the, they, they use some kind of black magic. Because they get from Chinatown, Philadelphia to Chinatown, New York City in 90 minutes. You know, this was in 2003, 2004. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that driving at midnight, you know what I mean, when there was yeah. no traffic. So I don't know how they got a bus up there. But it was, it was pretty awesome. I'd take the Chinatown bus at like 1.30, and uh, get to New York on three, and I would do, you know, four to five open mics a day, and then I would come back. And it all kind of, it was all serendipitous. The airplane I was flying was being retired. And so, right when I started doing comedy, missions started, you know, we started having less and less missions, less and less deployments, uh, as the airplane was being taken to the boneyard and being replaced with the C-17, as that flew the C-141. And so, as that happened, I was uh, I was in standardization and evaluation. I was the liaison officer, and my boss knew what I was trying to do. And my boss was like, "Listen, I need you here from eight to twelve to answer the phones, and you have to do all of your work for the day. So everything that you would do in an eight-hour day, you got to do it in four hours if you want to leave at twelve. But you can leave at twelve oh, if wow. you get all of all of that done. Yeah. So so my life in good comedy business was this." I'd get up at 6, get in my car at 6.30, cause I had to be at work at 8. It was a, from Philly, it was a 90-minute drive. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a good construction. And, and so I'd get to work at 8, and then I basically barely took pee breaks. You know what I mean? So I was there, and I worked constantly for four hours every day. At noon on the dot, I was in my car, driving back to Philly, and I would get there at, like, 1.15, something like that. Um, take off my uniform, throw on a, a you know city clothes, run down to the uh, the bus, you know. So that so it was 15 minutes of just you know heart pounding, right. walking down walking down to the bus, this thing which is like two blocks from my apartment in uh, in Philly, and then hop on the Chinatown bus, get to get to New York at three and start the open mics, and then I would do open mics uh, until 11 normally, and at 11 I would either hop on the trains to get home, or if I got invited to a late show, I would take the Amtrak home at 1 a.m. So I would, so I, I would get home 
at like uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.15, 2.30, something like that. Then I go to bed, wake up at 6, and do it again the next day. Wow, how long do you do that? Um, <clears throat> pretty consistently for the last eight months of my military like my military uh, uh, stationing there because I left in uh, I think November or December of yeah in, in, uh, in November of 04 I left there so from basically March until November that's what I did and so I did about you know I, I would do the most I ever did was like 19 sets little five minute sets in a week oh my gosh yeah, so I was I was pretty hardworking, and I I mean I I woke up in Washington D.C. a few times on that Amtrak. <laughs> the train conductor was like, "Last stop," and I go, "Philly? No, Washington D.C." I'm like, "Son of a bitch!" Oh. All right, well I guess I guess I'll hop on the train and go back north. Wow. You know, and I, I I caught up sleep on the weekends because when you're a young open mic comic, you don't you don't perform on the weekends. That's right. for the uh, for the for the pros. Right. Um, but Monday through Thursday, I was basically hoofing it every night, and it was—I don't—I don't know if you've ever loved something so much that you had a passion for it. But when you're tired because you did something you loved and you had passion for, it's like a good tired. Yeah. You know, it's—it's it's like a—it's like a very rewarding tired when you go to sleep. You know, because when you're doing a job that you don't like very much. That's the bad tired. Like yeah. uh, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. But this was the the good tired. I'm like I'm so tired, but I'm, I am doing so much cool stuff, you know. So those those first few years in New York and, and Philadelphia and all that, they were fantastic. So what's your schedule like now? Do you do clubs, the corporate stuff? Because um, I, I think I've seen you on the list in Minneapolis before. Although the place you're playing, Joker, they don't really give us their schedule until it's too late to schedule any interviews. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, we can we can fix that. Um, uh, yeah, I live in Los Angeles now, and uh, I'm trying to. I've been trying to do this for two years. I've been trying to draw back my touring schedule so I could be in LA more to do more movies and you know okay. and, and more acting. And the moment I stop booking myself, other bookers start calling me, and uh, that's kind of a rule in entertainment. When a booker calls you, yeah. That's a rarity. You cannot pass that up. Right. And so I've 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 not really drawn down that much uh, on my touring schedule. So I'm gone almost every weekend, mm. and then I do a week in Texas a month. You know, right. yeah, uh, yeah. flying flying airplanes. So yeah. I'm in a, I'm in LA during the week, um, probably two to three weeks a month, um, Monday through Wednesday or Thursday, uh, and that's kind of it. And so that's really not helping. But you know, I've got a flexible schedule. If if I audition for something and I get picked up, then you know that's the great thing about the job I have now with the Air Force is they can move stuff around. You know, a, a couple bosses ago, I was like, well, sir, what if I get you know a job in New Zealand doing The Hobbit two or whatever? <laughs> and the guy was like, the guy was like, how long would you be gone? I'm like, I don't know, like eight months, because I'd seen the you know I'd seen the DVD uh, extras for The <laughs> Hobbit and yeah. uh, and Lord of the Rings. So I was like, about eight months. He's like, yeah, when you come back, you know, we'll uh, we'll re-upgrade you and you can jump right back in. I was like, that is awesome, you know, to have that yeah. kind of flexibility. The reason is because I've already done my commitment. So right, everything right. I do now is, is extra. But um, to have that flexibility from a job that cool 
is uh, is pretty pretty amazing. And then you know, um, the one thing that that people like bookers will excuse you for is if you get a great opportunity. You know, so like, yeah. hey, I have to cancel in a couple weeks. Oh yeah, yeah. Because of, because of this, I got this TV show, and they're like, oh, that's great. Well, let's reschedule you because the the bookers thinking, oh, when you come back, you'll have a TV credit that'll help us. Oh yeah. You know, that'll help us. Uh, you know, um, promote you better for the next yeah. time. So. So is your act now pretty much? Is it still like a you know mostly stories, or have you become maybe more observational and looking around and seeing things around you, or what, what's the set like these days? Well, the progress that happened, you know, when you first you discover how to be funny, and so you kind of lump things together that don't really go all that well together, but they're kind of on the same subject matter. They're jokes that you know you write. You write an eight minute joke. I remember when I first started, I would write an eight minute joke. And when I when I whittled it down to what was funny, the joke was forty five seconds long. Yeah, yeah. But it but it had two to three punchlines in it, and it was a good joke. Yeah. But then you just do that, you know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and you and then you eventually get an hour. And that was my first hour. It was very, you know, haphazard. And and a buddy of mine who's a very big comedy connoisseur as a fan said he heard one of my early albums, and he's like, watching you now compared to then, I just I listened to the, the album then, and it was like, what, what, no, there's more. Why, why, why are you changing the subject? There's more. Go, go into that tip, you know, more. And, oh, and yeah, so yeah. The, the, so the jokes are kind of incomplete. Um, and then my first album that I put on iTunes, I was pretty pretty proud of, was a, uh, was like the, the refinement of that process. So I, I learned to write on a subject matter on purpose instead of lumping stuff together that didn't go together. Yeah. And then I learned the art of the, the callback and all that stuff. And so that's all in that album. It's called getting Sardewied. Huh. And then the, the last album I told, I started getting into storytelling and I really felt that, that, that vibe, you know, storytelling became a, I want to tell the story and, Oh, there's not enough punchlines right here. So I would write punchlines to fill it in instead of cutting the part that, that wasn't funny. You know yeah. I mean? I would, I would keep the story element, and then I would add punchlines. So that was a new skill that I acquired, and I was happy with. Cool. And what I'm doing, my my new album, that one's called the Story Time. That one just I released. Gotta, I got to grab yeah. this other interview now. Uh, but it was good talking to you, Jose. This will be in print and city pages the week you're there, and then I'll, I'll r- circle back with you via email. Thanks, okay, man. Okay, sounds good. Right. Anyway, I've I progressed. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bye-bye. was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Thanks again to Jose Sardaway for being on the show and uh, agreeing, I guess, post-interview to be on the show. Like I said, originally it was supposed to be just a print interview, but uh, wow, what a fun story that is. And a terrific guy. You can catch him, by the way, May 26th in Miami, Florida. He's doing a showcase there. Uh, details to be announced. Uh, you can go to josesardaway.com. Jose, standard spelling, Sardaway, S-A-R-D-U-Y.com. I guess in the meantime, he's going to have some corporate gigs. But check back at his website. It's josesardaway.com, and that'll uh, keep you up to date on all his uh, events where he's got, you know, he's going to be performing and so forth, so you can uh, so you can catch him live. All right, so we're up to the song of the week. Kind of a funny story with the song of the week here. I did not know Lindy Ortega had a new 
EP out. And a couple of weeks ago, I had this dream that I was interviewing her in a park in Nashville about her new album, which is not, not Faded Gloryville, though, when we played some tracks from uh, at the end of last year, she had a new album out, and we were discussing it, and she was talking about how fun, much fun she was having and all this other stuff. And it was really strange. And then a week later, I'm just going through Free Gold just to see if anything new from anybody, and I'm like, well, maybe Lindy does have something new. And what do you know? She does. Uh, her new EP is called Told the Goin' Gets Gone. <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, it is now the only thing she has in Freegal. All her other stuff is now out of Freegal, but uh, shouldn't stop you from going to iTunes or some such or Amazon and buying some of her uh, stuff there. Uh, meanwhile, we're going to listen to the title track from her EP, Till the Going Gets Gone. And this is our track of the week on PS Tape Recorder. Always good to hear from Lindy Ortega. Again, uh, this is our track of the week, Till the Going Gets Gone, Lindy Ortega, PS Tape Recorder. So long and thanks for listening. I can close the curtain. If I want to